when I was a young boy, um, I had trouble trusting in something, and it didn't really make sense that I was hung up on it. Let me explain. I grew up minutes away from Lake Mead in southern Nevada, near, right near Las Vegas and Lake Mead. And it was, it's, we have two temperatures there, hot and hotter. So you always spent time at the lake. And our family, we had a boat, and so we would spend time on the boat. And one of the things that our family loved to do back in the good old days was we loved to water ski. And so when I was a young boy, I would go with my dad and his friends and our family friends, and we'd water ski all day and just hang out in the lake where it was cool. And so from a young time, like ages four and five, I would watch people water ski behind our boat. And I would help them. They would jump in the water, and I'd throw their ski to them, and I'd throw the rope to them, and I would hold the flag to keep them safe. So I was, from a very young age, I was in the boat. I would help launch the boat. I'd help get the boat out. I was very comfortable with boats, very comfortable with, with everything going on in the water, would jump in the water, swim in the water, nothing, not really scared of anything. Uh, I, I, would, I would watch people ski behind the boat, and, and the rope wouldn't break, the skis didn't fail. They wouldn't sink in the water while they were skiing. But for some reason, I don't know even to this day, when I became old enough to ski at about six, I wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't do it. I was totally hung up on something. I, I, I don't know what I couldn't trust, whether it was my dad, the driver, or the water, or the skis. I don't know what it was. So years passed by, and I just was not trusting. And then one day I just decided, okay, today's the day. I, I got to jump in. I got to do it. And so I did. I, I grabbed some water skis. I told my dad, today's the day I'm, I'm doing it. And he's like, oh, you are? Yep, let's do it. Today's the day. So I jumped in, grabbed my skis, held onto the rope, yelled for my dad to take off. And immediately I got up and I skied for like a really long time like half an hour. And from that moment on, I was hooked. I was hooked. I'd go skiing as often as I could as a kid. No matter who it was, I would go. Sometimes trusting in Jesus is like this. You've been around the church. You know lots of Christian people. You have the base knowledge of Jesus, but something, for whatever reason, has just been holding you back. This morning, I want to encourage you. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Believe in Jesus. We're in a series right now called, Do I Trust God? And we've been talking since January, and we'll keep talking till the end of the year, about all the ways that we are challenged to trust God. But nothing is bigger than trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection. Because Jesus' death and resurrection is, frankly, something hard to trust in. So I want to ask a question this morning. Can we trust that Jesus went from death to life? Because the challenge is, we don't know anybody else that's ever done that. So why can we trust that Jesus did and why should we believe it with our lives? See, the death and resurrection of Jesus matters. It matters because the Bible claims something huge 
The Bible claims that the condition of our soul today, the way we live our lives out every single day of our life, and the future of our life after we die are all tied to this one moment, this one weekend, this one person in history, Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Now, if that's true, and the Bible claims that, then you and I need to investigate this fact, and we need to come to a decision about it, because the Bible also says something very interesting, that whether we believe in Jesus or not, the consequences of this weekend are upon us. And so it behooves us that because this is the fact that this matter, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is of the greatest importance in our life and in everyone's life on earth. So we'll ask this question this morning. Can we trust that Jesus went from death to life? Throughout our lifetime, all of us will experience the challenges of a missing persons case. We see them all the time on the news, somebody that was here, and then all of a sudden they're gone, and nobody can figure out what happened. The detectives question all of the people that saw them last in the last 24 to 48 hours, and for some reason, none of the facts line up. They can't get anything to come together. There's not enough evidence or facts to conclude murder. There's no eyewitnesses to what happened, and, and so this person just ends up in a missing person, missing closed case file, and the mystery remains unsolved, and there's no closure for family and friends. This happens all the time. The story of Jesus' death and resurrection is not like that. It's not like a missing persons case. In fact, it's the opposite. The story of Jesus is that people, hundreds of them, saw him die. And that hundreds of them saw him alive after he died. This is a completely different story. This is not a missing person at all. This is a found person, but you and I just have to figure out how to trust in this. The Bible records five or six actual eyewitnesses that wrote their account in the Bible. We'll look at some of those things this morning. The Bible also tells us that at multiple times, his best friends, his 12 best friends, saw him when they were all hanging out together. Before Jesus left the earth, the Bible says that over 500 people saw him at the same time before he went back to heaven. So the truth that the Bible is really claiming is that Jesus is alive and that because he is alive, you and I can have a relationship with him. Now in America, we have a powerful connection to facts, don't we? We love facts and we when we decide that we want to trust in something, we want to trust in the facts. So our judicial system is based on facts. Most of the time, it's most of the time. Modern science is based on facts. Most of the time. Now, we try our best to make medical decisions based on facts, don't we? If you go to the doctor... The doctor wants to base their decision on some facts. So they'll give you some tests. 
an x-ray, an MRI, an ultrasound, a blood test, and they'll compile all that information and all those facts to try to help you with your physical health. See, if we're going to trust in something or someone, we want facts. And God had people write down their eyewitness stories in the Bible so that you and I would not just have conjecture. We would not just have to have this giant leap of faith, like we're leaping off a cliff as if nothing, nothing is there. No, we have facts to back up our faith. So I want to look at a couple facts about Jesus' death and resurrection this morning. Here's some facts about Jesus' death. One of the facts that we know medically, uh, due to modern medicine, is a fact about Jesus, is that he was in hypovolemic shock after his flogging. Now, the story of Jesus um, on a cross actually gets worse than Jesus on a cross, because before he was on the cross, he was actually flogged, which means that the Romans uh, would scourge someone, they would flog someone if they weren't going to crucify them, and... um, Jesus had that happen before his crucifixion, and that meant that you would have 39 or plus lashes with a very, very interesting type whip. It had metal shards in it. It had bone shards in it. Um, about 50 to 65% of the people that were flogged by the Romans died during the flogging. This is a very brutal moment. Your body would be completely opened up and gashed everywhere, and you would, be, you would begin to lose a lot of blood. Hypovolemic means that you're losing blood. And when your body becomes hypovolemic, it, your heart begins to race to pump blood. And your blood pressure begins to drop. And sometimes, many times, that causes fainting. We see in the Bible that there were multiple times as Jesus was carrying his cross that he fainted along the way. And so the Romans grabbed a man out of the crowd named Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross the rest of the way because he couldn't stop fainting. His body was in hypovolemic shock. He was on his way to dying. You would also become very thirsty, and we notice on the cross that Jesus asks for water before his death is over. Another fact about Jesus' death is that Jesus was dead. And you may say, well, isn't that the whole point? Well, there's lots of people that think that maybe Jesus didn't die. Maybe he survived a horrible beating and flogging and a crucifixion and was just somehow kind of hanging out in his agony and later just kind of came back to life. But I want to reveal to you this morning that Jesus was absolutely and positively dead. The first way that we know this is that Roman soldiers had to guarantee that a person was dead before they took them down off a cross. Now you say, is that really a big point? It is for a Roman soldier because uh, mostly the reason you wanted the person to be dead was to save your own neck. As a Roman soldier, if a person that you crucified was later found to be alive, you would also get executed. So as a Roman soldier, you wanted to make sure 100% that this person on the cross was dead so that you wouldn't be dead too later. This is really important. So Roman soldiers, as a result of this, they became experts at killing people. They became experts at knowing what the body looks like when it's dead. 
they became experts at specific ways to kill a person. And the signs that you would know that somebody is absolutely dead. Now, one of those ways was that a soldier would pierce the person in their side. Now, the spear would go through that person's lung into their heart and then would be pulled out and that soldier was looking for two things. He was looking for a sudden and large flow of blood and water that would guarantee the person was dead. Now, the Roman soldier didn't really know the modern medical reason that we know today about why that was happening. That would happen because someone was in hypovolemic shock. See, when you go into hypovolemic shock, your, your body begins to store all of your blood and all of your water and all of your resources around your vital organs. So all of the water in your body, all of the blood in your body begins to surround your heart and surround your lungs and surround those things important to you right, right in your inner cavity. So you begin to have a large amount of blood and water right in this area. And this, this term, the term for this is, is called an effusion. A pericardial effusion is when the blood goes around your heart. And a pleural effusion is when it, when it finds itself just kind of balled up all around your lungs. So when a soldier pierces you with a, a, a spear, you have a large amount of blood and water right there. John 19.34 says, One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. So one of the things that, that the gospel writers uh, tell us is that Jesus was absolutely 100% dead. Also, after Jesus' death, he told his disciples many times to look at the nail marks in his hands, his feet, and the piercing in his side. So over and over again, Jesus was telling people, I want you to see the things that killed me, that brought about my death. These are some of the facts about Jesus' death. There's also some facts about the resurrection. One of the facts about the resurrection is the very first thing that happens after Jesus is off the cross. And that is about a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was the person who took Jesus' body after it was off the cross, and he took it to a brand new tomb that he had, he had, had made. In John 19, verse 38 and 41 to 42, it says this, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now here's what's interesting about this point of the story. Joseph of Arimathea is named in all four gospel accounts. This is interesting because you wouldn't want to name the person who took the body and placed it in their tomb if this was false. You wouldn't want to be able to go actually find that person and discover that this story wasn't true. I had the opportunity to visit 
um, Israel many years ago and went to the spot that they believed was this tomb. It's kind of hard to find an empty tomb and be sure that that's where Jesus was when it's empty. But anyway, uh, we went to this tomb, and the, the guy who did the little tour, and, and I know there were tours all over, so it's kind of like, how do you know it was the right one? And the guy said, um, you know, obviously we cannot prove that this was uh, the tomb that Jesus was in because he's no longer here and the tomb is empty. But um, I'll, I, I want to show you something at the conclusion of our time together. We can prove that this property that you're standing on was the property of Joseph of Arimathea. Like, oh, okay, well, that's a little bit different. We have some facts now. And so I got to go look at the documentation of how it was passed down for centuries and that, that the property was deeded to him in the first century. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, so you could go look him up there. Also, Joseph was taking a pretty bold step. The religious group that he was a part of, the Sanhedrin, this was the group that killed Jesus. This was the group that paid Judas to betray him. This was the group that, as you read through the New Testament, were the individuals that constantly wanted Jesus killed because he was messing up their religious system that they were becoming very wealthy at. Joseph was a part of that system, that structure. And had they known he ratted them out, he was in for it big time. Another reason we, we see a fact about the resurrection, or another thing that we notice is a fact, is that the tomb was secure. Sometimes people think, well, maybe the tomb wasn't secure, so Jesus just walked out after a flogging being pierced in the heart with a spear. But that's not true. The tomb was definitely secure. In Matthew 27, verse 60 to 61, it says, He, he being Joseph of Arimathea, placed it, it being Jesus' body, in his own new tomb, which had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. Both Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting across from the tomb and watching. Now, the first thing that we notice here is that um, there was a great stone rolled across the entrance, and they left. I'd like to show you a picture of what we're talking about. This is a tomb uh, that was used in the first century. It's still in Jerusalem today. And you'll notice this giant stone. Now, these stones were huge. They, they would weigh somewhere between 1,000 to 2,000 pounds. They were extremely heavy. You would not be able to move one by yourself. You'd need several individuals to move it with you. But you can see how it's kind of in a groove there. And that groove was kind of slanted backwards. It was slanted so that if you needed to close it by yourself, you could. You could just take out the chuck, and it would roll back into place and it would close by itself, but to roll the stone back up the hill would be extremely difficult. This would make tombs in the first century very secure. Now, people did this on purpose. They did it on purpose because, unfortunately, there were a lot of people that would steal things out of tombs in the first and second century. And so they'd put this giant rock in front of the, in front of the opening to the tomb to make sure that whatever you put in there, a body, or maybe you put in there with that person, that they wouldn't be robbed. And so this was really to prevent grave robbing. And so it, it was purposeful, and, and a large stone was placed there, so it would be very difficult to move that stone. Now, not to mention the stone, uh, they also placed some guards there. So in Matthew 27, the, the teachers of the law 
go to Pilate and say, hey, we remember that this Jesus guy said that he was going to come back to life. So will you place some guards in front of the tomb to guard the tomb so that uh, his disciples can't come and steal the body? And so they did. Pilate said, take a guard, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So not only is this giant rock in front of the tomb, but now there's a seal on the stone. And the seal is the seal of Pilate. And what a seal meant in the first century was if you, if you change whatever I've put the seal on, we can kill you. So here's another reason that the tomb is secure. Then they posted a guard. And these guards are posted there. And they're posted there to make sure that nobody comes and steals the body. And just like before, if they didn't do their duty, they would be executed. So they would fight to the death to make sure that nobody stole the body. So what we see here is that the tomb was secure. No men would have been able to come and steal the body, especially while the guards were there. You say, well, the guards were asleep. Well, I've been a parent before, and I remember when my, parent, my kids would try to sneak out of the house, and you could hear the littlest thing in the house, the window creaking open, whatever, and you're like, oh, somebody's coming in or coming out. Do you think some guys could move a gigantic thousand pound stone right next to a guard's head and he wouldn't wake up? Probably not. The fact is that the tomb was very secure. So here's what I want you to know. Nobody was getting in that tomb. Can I also tell you something else? Nobody was getting out. Nobody was getting out of this tomb either unless they had a very, very powerful set of friends and a really powerful father. That's the only way you're getting out. Another reason that we know the resurrection story to be true is because of the story itself. So, well, how does the story itself prove that it's a story and that it's a fact? Well, here's how. The story of Jesus coming back to life is pretty challenging. It's pretty miraculous. It requires a lot of trust to believe in it, even if it's true. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, this is the story that they begin to tell everybody in Jerusalem. They begin to tell everybody in the town where Jesus died and rose again that the tomb was empty and that he's alive. Well, that that's a pretty tough story to tell in the story where it happened unless it's true because you could easily go to the tomb and say, hey, guys, let's roll the stone. Okay, let's roll the stone back. There's his body. See it? Your story doesn't make sense. Your story's not true. He's right there. There's his bones. There's his body. It's been decaying for a month, but come on. Stop telling this story because you're just, you're just making yourself look kind of insane or fairly ignorant. So the story itself of an empty tomb because nobody can find Jesus' body is a true story. Even the Pharisees who had killed Jesus, after they heard that Jesus had come back to life and the tomb was empty, they had to make up a story 
because they didn't want this story of Jesus being the Messiah to get out. And so the story that they produce is what? It's that the disciples came and stole the body. Well, why did they make up a story that the disciples came and stole the body? Why didn't they make up a story that the tomb was that the body was in the tomb? Because the body wasn't in the tomb. Because even the, even the Pharisees and the teachers of the law could not produce a body of Jesus. Why? Because he wasn't there. He was in heaven. So this was true. Here's another reason that the story of the resurrection is true, even though it may seem interesting. Women were the first to see Jesus' empty tomb and testify that they saw him alive. Now, this is interesting. You may think, why is that a big deal? Well, a woman's word meant nothing in the first century, unfortunately. A woman could not even testify in court as an eyewitness. So it doesn't make any sense that every single gospel writer would make women the first to testify about the empty tomb if a woman's testimony is never valid, unless it's the truth. Unless it's the truth. And all of the writers are proclaiming the facts about Jesus' resurrection. See, the fact that all the gospel writers talk about the women as the first to see the empty tomb collaborates the facts. Lastly, the death and resurrection of Jesus was the creed of the church in the first century. About 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the rest of the New Testament begins to get written. Because there are churches and followers of Jesus, believers in Jesus' death and resurrection, there are people getting saved and filled with the Spirit and believing in Jesus all over North Africa, all over the Middle East, all over modern-day Turkey and heading up into Europe, and it's happening. There are thousands of people coming to believe in Jesus Christ at a very, very rapid rate. And so the apostles begin to write letters to these churches. And they begin to talk about the foundation of the church and of our relationship with Jesus. The message that the followers of Jesus were telling the world was that Jesus died on a cross and came back to life. This was the creed. This was the foundation of the church. This was the message of the church, and it still is today. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, it says, the writer, the Apostle Paul says, For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. These verses declare four facts about Jesus. One, Jesus died. Two, Jesus was buried. Three, Jesus came back to life. And four, there's a lot of eyewitnesses about this fact. 
And if you want to go talk to any of these people, the writer says, go ahead. Most of them are still alive. So if you were reading this letter in the first century and you were questioning the life of Jesus, questioning his death and resurrection, questioning all the ideas that this church was proclaiming, the writer here, Paul, says, hey, I'll, I'll give you a bunch of people. I'll name them. Cephas is one. James is one. I'm one. Uh, all of the 12 apostles, you can find one of them. There's uh, about four or 500 other people all saw him alive. So if you'd like to go talk to any of those people, you certainly can. See, if the resurrection was false, you'd never name individuals. You'd never name people that people could go talk to and discover the truth. But as believers in Jesus Christ began to get persecuted in horrible ways, the other interesting fact is no one recounted their story. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was so powerful inside the first and second and third century Christians that they were graciously willing to die for their faith. The Christian faith became so powerful that Constantine, the Roman emperor, said, if you can't beat them, join them. The resurrection is vindication of Jesus' divine identity. It validates all his teaching. It's proof of his triumph over death and sin. It's the foreshadowing of the resurrection to heaven for all who believe in him. It's the basis of hope in the world today. And it's the miracle of all miracles. Can we trust that Jesus went from death to life? I believe we can. I believe the eyewitness accounts, the prophecy, and the things in God's word prove to us that this is a real fact. It's not just something we believe by faith. My faith and a whole bunch of facts combine together to help us believe in Jesus. Now, how does that help us today? Well, it helps us today because you and I need a relationship with Jesus. It also answers the why question. When you read this story and you think about what happened and you think about what Jesus did, a lot of times I still, even today, even though I've been walking with Jesus for a while, sometimes I still just ask myself, Jesus, why would you do that for me? It's so awesome. And I always come back to the fact that Jesus just loves you. He loves me. He wants relationship with you. He would leave heaven and die a horrible death on a cross because it solved our biggest problem. How many of you know we got a lot of problems in the world today? We got a lot. We got a lot of problems in the world today, but none. None of them are bigger than the condition of our soul. Not a single one. The other interesting challenge is if we got our soul right and we got our heart right and we got our mind right, focused on God and the love that we're supposed to have for Him and for one another, we'd solve all the other problems. See, as humans, we make mistakes. We just do, it's part of our nature. It's part of who we are. 
that's our biggest problem. It's our biggest problem because our mistakes cause us to have a really challenging and difficult and impossible relationship with our Heavenly Father, our Creator, our Savior, and our friend. And God wanted to open the way for you and I to have a relationship with Him. The only way for that to happen was for you and I to somehow become perfect. And I'm 100% confident that's not happening for me, and I know it's not happening for you, at least for those of you that I know. Some of you in this room I don't know. But I'm just guessing. You're not going to be perfect either. You're not now, and you're probably going to make some more mistakes in your life. Jesus came so that you and I could take care of this problem. See, the only way for you and I to solve this imperfection that we have is for someone perfect to die in our place. For that perfect person to die for us so that we could have life. And that's the story of Easter. That's why Jesus died on the cross. But if he died on the cross and never came back to life, then you and I could actually continue to be stuck in our imperfection. We needed the resurrection. We needed Jesus to come back to life so that the power of his life could be in our life so we could have eternal life. And that's the message of Jesus. That's why he came. That's why people all around the world have been believing in Jesus generation after generation after generation. Leaving their old ideas, their old philosophies, their old false religions, and coming to believe in Jesus Christ because they recognize that only Jesus can give me what I need, can solve my problem. That's who he is. That's what we celebrate today. The resurrection of Jesus resurrects us. It changes our lives forever. It forgives our mistakes. It gives us purpose and identity. It empowers us with hope. It ensures that heaven will be our future home. And it helps us love our neighbor and the people around us, which is so impossible to do sometimes. This is why Jesus came. This is why he's here. This is what we're celebrating here right now. We're going to take a couple minutes uh, and conclude our service in a little bit different way. We're going to sing a song. When we're done singing that song, I'm going to come up and, and I want to talk to you about water baptism for a minute. Water baptism is something that people do after they've believed in Jesus. And I want to talk about that as a response for this morning. But would you, would you mind standing with me? And would you sing this song called Resurrecting with me, with our, with our song team? And then I'll come back in just a minute.